So uh, today we're back again talking about Exomphilus, also known as Omphilocele. So if we say Omphilocele or Exomphilus, we basically mean the same thing during this podcast. This is one of the classic abdominal wall defects that you see in neonates. And again, we have Mr. Singh, uh, one of our consultants at QMC in Nottingham, to talk us through what that is exactly. So uh, first of all, yeah, Mr. Singh, you're able to kick us off with exactly what an Exomphilus is. Thank you very much. Uh, Oxamphalus are also known as omphalocele. This is a congenital abdominal wall defect where there is a defect where all the three layers of the abdominal wall are missing, which means skin, muscles and peritoneum over a period of uh, over a distance of the abdominal wall. And this is rather covered with three layers which is peritoneum, Wharton's jelly, and amnion all fused together. So the defect is basically covered. It is of three types. If it is a very small defect, roughly one to two centimeters in size, and where there's only a small knuckle of ball in the defect, then we call it a hernia of the umbilical cord. If the defect is less than five centimeters inside, we call it umphalocele minor or exemplus minor. And if the defect is more than five centimeters in diameter, we call it omphalocele or exomphalus major. The way exomphalus is different from gastroschisis is that the bowel contents or the herniated contents, which could even involve the liver, they are covered with a three layer covering. And also it is associated with lot of congenital abnormalities. And just, just going back to that with three layer covering, so gastroschisis, there's no covering, essentially. In, yeah, in the gastroschisis, you have a one to two centimeter defect toward the right of the umbilicus through which all the mids ball herniates out. You never have herniation of the liver outside and it is not covered with any membrane. Fine, good. And you were saying there, just before I interrupted you very rudely, uh, that there are uh, some associated anomalies that you get with exomphalus and you don't really get that with the gastroschisis. Uh, with exomphalus, you get a lot of other system abnormalities like cardiac abnormalities, which are present in up to 45% of the neonates. These cardiac abnormalities could be VSD, ASD, ectopia cordis, tricuspid atresia, coarctation of aorta, or persistent pulmonary hypertension of neuron. You can also have a lot of chromosomal abnormalities, which can found in up to 20% of the cases of exomphalus. Then Down syndrome is known to be uh, associated with the exomphalus. Then you can get some musculoskeletal and neurotube defects, which are again reported to be higher. And then you get gastroesophageal reflux. Now, in comparison, in gastroschisis, you don't get any of these systemic abnormalities, but you get a lot of intestinal abnormalities in the form of intestinal atresia or even a vanishing intestine from vanishing gastroschisis. Right. And, um, understand you can have problems i don't know if you touched on it there where the superior or inferior part of the abdominal wall also fails to close off properly so if it's inferior then it might be like the oeis complex so omphalocele yes. extrophy of the bladder and perforate anus and yeah. i think syringa and milder isn't it yeah you actually get two types of variants one is called cafflet defects and another is called caudal defect if the defect is sphere at the superior end, we can call it a pentalogy of cantrell, which is a lethal cephalic fold defect, which involves omphalocele, diaphragmatic hernia, 
ectopic ectopia cordis where the heart is lying outside even without any pericardium and then structural heart defects along with sternal cleft and then you can get severe caudal fold defects which can involve the extrophy and other variants perfect so with these patients being at much higher risk of having all these this whole host of different congenital anomalies does that uh, affect your approach to antenatal management yeah the diagnosis of the most of the exomphalus whether it's minor or major is made on the antenatal scans and because they are associated with a lot of chromosomal abnormalities because they are associated with a lot of organ system abnormalities especially the cardiovascular system and because it is associated with a lot of syndromes which are present in approximately 10 to 20 percent and the commonest syndrome is back with Weidman syndrome which we can talk later a little bit or neural tube defects so that is why in prenatal period most of the centers will do amniocentesis karyotyping, fetal echocardiogram, and if a CNS abnormality is suspected, even a fetal MRI. This is very different from gastroschisis. And if the molecular testing is available in the center, which is available in most of the centers, then you test for backward Weidman syndrome, and that uh, is very uh, important to test. Perfect, and just rewinding a little bit, um in our podcast on gastroschisis, you were saying that you get a cauliflower appearance um, on the ultrasound. Uh, is there any sort of characteristic appearance that you might get with uh, exomphalus? In exomphalus, you don't get a cauliflower uh, appearance, but you rather get a smooth sac protruding out of the abdominal wall. And then the people can study various ratios involving the diameter of the sac with the abdominal circumference, with the head circumference and with the femur circumference. But there is no characteristic studies which validate the prognostic aspects of these ratios. So I'm sure with a lot of these babies that you investigate, a lot of them would end up having these congenital anomalies. So how does that affect your approach to antenatal counselling? Uh, Exomplus needs a very, very detailed and responsible antenatal counseling because of associated abnormalities of the cardiovascular system, nervous system, as well as the syndromes. So you do emphasize to the parents that the outcome of the omphalocele is largely determined by the associated malformations, although it is also determined by the size of the omphalocele, but it's the associated malformation which determine the mortality and morbidity. And the other thing you have to stress is that approximately 30% of the babies can still have associated abnormalities in the postnatal period in spite of extensive prenatal workup, which is normal for those abnormalities. So the baby's been born and uh, basically they've not picked up any other associated anomalies. Uh, how would you manage these children? Yeah, these children, I will divide them into two categories. One is a stable child with an intact omphalocele Another is the unstable child with the omphalocele, which is ruptured, which is a very serious situation. So let's talk about a stable child with an intact omphalocele. You put the child in the supine position. You cover the sac with the moist gauze dressing to avoid any desiccation. And you have to be very careful that the sac does not get ruptured because if it gets ruptured, it becomes a very difficult and complicated problem to manage. You put a nasogastric tube and put it on free drainage and aspiration because you don't want it to distend. Then you send some blood 
for routine blood tests as well as blood samples for any genetic evaluation. You can do a gentle per rectal examination A to rule out any anorectal malformation but more important is to evacuate the meconium. The intravenous fluids are given as maintenance rate through the upper extremity and try to avoid the lower extremity and this is important because of the surgical repair later on. Prophylactic antibiotics are started and coming to the investigations it is very important to do an early echocardiogram because as I said these are associated with cardiac abnormalities and other important difference between them and the gastroschisis is that you do extensive diligent 24-hour monitoring of blood sugar and this is done despite a negative beckman widman screening syndrome because these children are very prone to get hypoglycemia and it is present in both in small as well as big omphalocele. So the size does not prevent the occurrence of uh, hypoglycemia and that should be watched very carefully. So these are the things which and you can do an um, ultrasound to of the abdomen to look for any renal abnormalities although it can be sometimes difficult and not advised because of the risk of rupture of omphalocele. So as we've already addressed a lot of these children will have cardiopulmonary issues so how is this going to impact on your management of these children? Absolutely you always do an echocardiogram beforehand and then you divide these kids into two categories one is the one with a significant cardiopulmonary morbidity and one without significant cardiopulmonary morbidity along with that the other determinant factor is that what is the size of the omphalocele and what is the size of the abdominal cavity so depending upon that you have a different management algorithm but the main goal is to close the defect in an expeditious manner with least number of procedures and minimize any iatrogenic morbidity so if you have exemplars minor or you have omphalocele of the cord and there is no significant cardiac abnormality you take them to the operating theater after or within 24 hours and you do a primary closure. Now the challenge comes in omphalocele major and that is where you have to ask the three question is there a cardiopulmonary morbidity what is the size of the abdominal cavity and what is the size of the viscous which is outside the abdomen and whether majority or part of the liver is herniated outside. And understand the liver is particularly friable in neonates in particular isn't it? That is a very important question. The liver is friable and the membrane is very stuck to the liver and it is very easy to injure and cause bleeding while separation of this membrane from the liver from the glissens capsule of the liver or if you're not careful especially in the upper midline you can even cause a fatal or serious injury to the hepatic veins of the liver. So if you aren't able to perform a primary closure what were your other options? If the there is a significant cardiopulmonary morbidity and there is a huge disproportion between the abdominal cavity and the contents in the omphalocele then you go for what the technique which is called ashkarization where you don't operate but paint the sac with various agents and most common being silver sulfadiazine which is used these days and wait for two to three months for the ashkar to form and then the skin slowly grows over that ashkar 
then you have a skin covered huge ventral hernia which you repair at the age of one to two years depending on the circumstances however if there is no significant cardiopulmonary morbidity and there is not a huge disproportion between the abdominal domain and the contents which are in the umphalocele then you go for either primary cloyer or a stage cloyer you mentioned earlier that some some of these patients have a ruptured ruptured sac so how how is what's the management going to be there ruptured sac is a serious thing because now you are committed to surgery and it is going to behave like a gastroschisis with lot of risk of hypothermia as well as fluid and electrolyte losses from the evaporation from the extruded intestine now if the defect is small and the ruptured umphalocele is not associated with serious serious cardiopulmonary morbidity then you can attempt a primary cloyer however if there is a serious underlying cardiac or pulmonary condition and the def and the extruded intestine is quite a bit in volume then you have to do a lot of innovative surgery and one of the option is to create a silo by stitching it to the skin and the muscles and cover the defect and gently reduce the silo and then leave it there so that there is a eschar which forms under the silo and then you can take the silo off and then you behave this behaves like a eschcarization and then let the epithelialization to come and then you close this defect at the age of 1 to 2 years as a big ventral hernia and with these patients say you had been able to form the primary closure early would they would you expect a prolonged admission like with the gastroschisis babies or does the gal that does the bowel get going is a bit quicker than that that's a very good question these children have a normal intestine unlike gastroschisis there is no matting there is no thickening of the intestine so these patients once they are closed unless they don't have huge intra compartmental tension the intestine function much quicker however the most of the patient do require post operative ventilation and they do require a central or a pick line because the intestine may not function after a tight or a semi tight closure for at least 8 to 9 days or maybe 6 to 7 days but it is not like gastroschisis where it doesn't function for you know 3 to 4 weeks so the bowel function does return in most of the time it is by 3 weeks but in most of them in the first week fine so you'd be looking at getting them home a bit sooner if you have been able to form that closure a bit earlier then i would say if it is exemplus minor or if it is a primary closure or it is a easy stage closure then you are talking about home in 3 to 4 weeks time but if it is exemplus major which cannot be closed by primary or stage closure and you are depending on escharization then they end up staying in the hospital sometime for 2 to 3 months till there is a stable eschar and then only you can send them home yeah and just to reiterate what you're saying the main thing that determines their prognosis is their associated abnormalities basically yes so the main thing is the associated abnormalities especially the seriousness of the cardiopulmonary abnormalities and also is the size of the defect and its relative ratio to the abdominal cavity perfect and another thing that we addressed in the gastroscopic podcast was that you essentially be concerned want to monitor these babies closely for potential development of compartment syndrome and 
we're not going to talk about it too much here, but that would be something that you'd want to keep an eye on for sure. Right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Especially after primary closure, you are concerned with the compartment syndrome and the same things which we talked in the gastroscrisis, which means the measurement of the intra-abdominal pressure, whether you measure it with a nasogastric route or with the intravesical route or what we call planktonic perfusion pr pressure, which is nothing but a mean arterial pressure minus intra-abdominal pressure. That is very important in the seals, especially the ones which are closed primarily and which can be a tight lawyer. So that, that about wraps it up. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with? Uh, yeah, well, the only thing is that I can tell you is that the incidence of the seal is decreasing compared to gastroscrisis. The reason being that a lot of these are associated with serious chromosomal and cardiac abnormalities and undergo termination. And so there is a lot of these which are diagnosed antenatally but don't come to the postnatal uh, period as compared to gastric cases which mo most of them are diagnosed antenatally and then they are born. Thanks so much. So obviously a lot of these things require a bit of a visual aid so we will be doing a PowerPoint presentation with the voice so if any of that hasn't been completely clear but thanks so much for your time Mr Singh and look forward to the next one. Thank you David. Thank you for listening to another podcast brought to you by School of Surgery. Remember you can follow us on Facebook at School of Surgery, on iTunes, on Podomatic at schoolofsurgery.podomatic.com and finally by searching School of Surgery on YouTube. Thank you very much and see you next time.